Hi there, I'm Nick and welcome to the CNI podcast, the podcast where we take a look at what's happening in the world and try to determine the greater context and implications. You can find more at the website cniblog.com if you'd like to read some articles, and the podcast will be posted there as well. The sponsor for today's podcast is me, or rather CNI, the blog and podcast dedicated to providing information on greater context and implications for what happens in the world. Big news so often provides raw details without context, leaving you to put the pieces together for yourself, having to read three stories from different outlets just to get an idea of what's happening. At CNI, I do that legwork for you and give you at least my best approximation of what it all means. I have degrees in history and philosophy, so let's face it, it's the only thing I'm good at. Anyway, today we'll be taking a more in-depth look at the Department of Defense 2024 fiscal year budget. Specifically, Titles 12 and 13 recently passed through the House of Reps and should be entering Senate today at the time of recording. I wrote a summary of the whole bill earlier this week, which can be found on the CNI blog website, cniblog.com. Uh, for those of you on YouTube, I put a link to the article as well as a link to the full bill in the description. If you're on Spotify or if you're listening on the CNI blog website, it should be really simple. Just navigate, go to the articles, and you'll be able to find it. Now, this bill is very extensive, so I've had to really, really pick and choose what I think is important to focus on. If there's any particular area of it you'd like me to take a deeper dive on, just leave a comment uh, so I can see and I'll try to get to it. Uh, but with that being said, let's get to it. First, let's take a look at some basic information on how a bill is structured. Uh, the bill is broken up into sections called titles, which in this case contain special interests and legislative provisions. Um, the special interests are really broad. A lot of the time it's you know, just acknowledgments or recognitions of facts that exist in the world or observations based on whoever's writing the bill or a committee or a politician, something like that. Uh, there's also reports, summaries, um, sometimes requests that, you know, from the politicians to the writers of the bill stating that they need more information on something and giving them a directive to do so, stuff like that. Uh, for the legislative provisions, this is basically anything that will make some sort of concrete change. Um, again, once again, it could be requests or it could be, uh, you know, prohibitions of something, changing rules, uh, anything that's going to make some sort of definitive change in policy or the law. Um, the bill in total uh, is enormous hundreds of special interests and legal provisions in titles 12 and 13 alone the focus of today are 36 special interests and 60 provisions which is far far too much for one podcast so i've just picked a handful to go over that i believe to be either most important or more at the forefront of current issues and in the news frequently okay so let's get started um, something that I believe can really set the stage for the other important parts of the bill would be a special interest in Title 12, which is entitled Briefing on UCOM slash Indo-PACOM Irregular Warfare Coordination. Uh, it's a special interest that emphasizes the need for cooperation and coordination between the European Command and the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command uh, in the realm of irregular warfare. And it also aims to assess the current state of coordination between these two commands and explore some opportunities for improving collaboration. 
Now first, you may ask, like I did, what on earth is a regular warfare? Well, the U.S. defense defines it as, quote, a violent struggle among state and non-state actors for legitimacy and influence over the relevant populations. Essentially, it's to say it's a primarily indirect or asymmetric means of fighting a war or making armed violent conflict. Uh, So think, you know, some targeted drone strikes on some sort of logistically important uh, location or propaganda bombs to change popular opinion, uh, planting spies to submerge enemy efforts, funding an insurgency, uh, guerrilla warfare, stuff like that. Although it still can entail the full employment of all military capability. It's just usually more oriented toward, you know, side stuff. Now, can you think of anywhere where this might be applicable today? Somewhere where you'd need coordination between both Europe and Indo-Pacific commands? China would be a good answer, and I'll get to them later. But I think in Title 12, it is more likely speaking about Russia or setting the stage for Russia, and further investment in Ukraine. I think you could be relatively confident that if prodded, the DoD would say that this increase in communication can enhance the ability for the U.S. to counter and respond to emerging threats of irregular warfare in Europe and the Pacific. And they'd probably be right. It can definitely be used for that. But it's also important to note that the increased coordination and cooperation can also increase the ability to facilitate irregular warfare against others. After all, the aspects of irregular warfare can be complicated and multidimensional. Aligning strategies and logistics across two really big regions and commands can really maximize the impact of any operations that are going on. Which brings us to the next one. Also in Title 12, Special Interest Mission Support to Ukraine. I list that here because I believe it's most relevant to the irregular warfare coordination that has been spoken of in the other special interest. This special interest uh, is from committee to assess the current state of support and its effectiveness in aid for Ukraine, and also how the Department of Defense has been handling aid disbursements. It also directs exploring opportunities for further assistance, including an assessment of Ukraine's defense capabilities, their training, and further help in how to build Ukraine's capacity to wage war. This is further addressed in legislative provisions in Title 12, Subtitle C, Sections 1221 through 1225, which would extend Lend-Lease to Ukraine through 2024, as well as extend a Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative through 2025, and create a special inspector general for Ukraine assistance. A whole new position just for all that. Now, it wouldn't be news to anyone that the U.S. is pretty committed to keeping Ukraine in the fight. However, when you look at the U.S. commitment to irregular warfare coordination, in conjunction with uh, the interest in increased funding and aid to Ukraine, maybe you can notice something. What stands out? Well, Ukraine has conducted a war primarily focused on precision strikes against Russia. They strike at logistics depots with drones, they destroy bridges, uh, they cut off roads, and they don't really do a whole lot of frontline massive-scale fighting. Leads me to believe that perhaps the U.S. has been helping and facilitating training this kind of war. I mean, even looked at the sudden, although short-lived, Wagner Group insurgency that existed for a day, maybe? Anyway, admittedly, this is an assumption. But I'm just looking at the indicators. 
the U.S. has been helping Ukraine develop strategy. I just don't see many other ways that Ukraine could have developed such sophisticated tactics to employ against Russia since the beginning of the war. And I know you might be sitting there saying, geez, Nick, that's a reach. And maybe. I don't have clearances. I'm not a whistleblower. I've never been in any of those rooms. But there are connections there, even if it's seen as a real escalation by the U.S. But we can also consider this increase in Ukraine assistance a response to our next point, which also comes in Title 12, a special interest titled Russia Leaving the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, or CFE. Uh, this was, and still is, a treaty designed to promote stability and transparency among its members by limiting the number of military forces and equipment deployed in the region. With Russia gone, they have no obligation at all uh, to state what they're doing, where they're doing it, and how much of it they're bringing with them. And they kind of have free reign now to do what they want, to where they want, without having to report it to anyone else in the treaty. So that means that countries like the U.S. and other European countries don't have access to reliable information about Russian movements, equipment, deployments, and more importantly, Russian strategic plans or weapons development. That is no reliable information that isn't derived from espionage or surveillance. Now, it's not to say this is what the U.S. or Europe is doing, but if I suddenly lost most of my access to reliable information regarding what I consider to be a dangerous possible enemy, and they were in armed conflict with an ally of mine, and I didn't want to get outwardly or directly involved, I'd probably invest in training my ally in how to become experts in irregular warfare, so that they could keep a much larger enemy at bay by focusing on weak points and making disruptions. Only time will tell. But from there, we can maybe take a little pivot to China. Now, as far as I can tell, China and the Pacific is the focal point of Article 13, and from what I've read, the DOD may believe it to have a much greater present importance than the situation with Ukraine and Russia. They have six whole special interests and 14 legislative provisions dedicated solely to the Pacific area. And bear with me on some of these special interests, their mouthfuls, just to make things a little bit more expedient. Uh, they are as follows. The, quote, acquisition and cross-servicing agreements with Pacific Island countries quote, briefing on defense cooperation involving Japan and Korea, quote, briefing on requirements for measuring regional sentiment and the leveraging commercially available technologies to support information operations in U.S. Indo-PACOM, or the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Next, quote, cooperation among U.S. defense partners, quote, Extreme weather war games, quote, Indo-Pacific Command stockpiles for submarines and anti-submarine warfare. Now, going through all of them in depth would take quite some time, and I want this to be a relatively brief podcast. So let's just go in order first. The acquisition and cross-servicing agreements with Pacific Island countries focuses on the need to build relationships with Indo-Pacific countries, specifically the island countries, as well as exchanging equipment and developing logistics support for, quote, operations and exercises. They explicitly name some of the countries and island nations, and that includes the Marshall Islands, Palau, Fiji, Nauru, Tonga, 
Cook Islands, Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, and a handful of other ones. Next would be the briefing on defense cooperation involving Japan and Korea. And that essentially just is a recognition of the strategic importance of defensive cooperation involving those nations and includes instruction for the Secretary of Defense to work with the commanders in the Indo-Pacific area to help develop relations, plans, and steps to take in the event of armed conflict, as well as some opportunities or initiatives that can enhance bilateral defense. After that, there is the mouthful of requirements for measuring regional sentiment and leveraging commercially available tech to support information operations in U.S. and Dopecom. This essentially recognizes the importance of monitoring public opinion in those regions as a measure of what they call monitoring malign activity by other powers and also has directives in place to, quote, leverage commercially available technology to measure regional sentiment and shape the information environment. This one, I think, is kind of sticky for me because it's pretty much saying, hey, we know that there are countries like China, Russia, who knows who else, that are running these kind of like information or propaganda campaigns in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. And that might influence the opinions of the populace there. So what we need to do is do it better than them. And on top of that, we need to be able to do it with only what is commercially available there, which is a pretty significant indication, at least, that there is some form of, in some capacity, I believe probably pretty high capacity, uh, military or intelligence personnel in those countries working specifically on this type of thing to, you know, learn how to leverage the, the available technology in the area to get a feel for what the people there think of the world and the things going on in it. And then on top of that, how they can then shape that environment to benefit the U.S. and its allies. So we'll go a little bit more on, you know, exactly what all of these things mean. But for the next special interest is the cooperation among U.S. defense partners, which just really focuses on Taiwan and a need to provide them with more military training as a means to enhance its self-defense capabilities. And it also makes a recognition statement that other partners to the U.S. may need similar assistance. It doesn't name those partners, but I feel that you can be relatively certain that Japan, Korea, and some of those island nations are included in that list of who else would be trained. After that is the Extreme Weather War Games. This is an acknowledgement of the severity and likelihood of severe weather in the Pacific region. Uh, it cites typhoons, earthquakes, cyclones, heavy rainfall, stuff like that. So that includes you know, land uh, operations as well as sea operations. But it refers specifically to the, I'm butchering the pronunciation of this, I'm sure, the the Hokuli Moa war game, which was held in Hawaii in January of 2023, which focused heavily on the impacts of climate change on military operations. And that was kind of how the war game was orchestrated and designed. Um, so, 
it's a directive to Pacific commanders and the Secretary of Defense and Joint Chiefs to analyze the results of this war game so they can make some more informed decisions and advise on how to craft future war games and what kind of measures need to be put in place to make the U.S. more effective in the Pacific region with those capabilities in mind. Uh, and worry in the Pacific and war games and weather and whatnot gets a little bit more in-depth with concern, quote, deeply concerning adequacy of the Indo-Pacific command stockpiles for submarine and anti-submarine warfare. The wording of this is unlike most of the other provisions and special interests in the bill. The fact that they use the words deeply concerned within it makes me believe that it is probably significantly worse than just deeply concerned. There is probably a very severe shortage or lack of adequacy in their ability. For those that don't know much about modern naval warfare, submarines are essential. It's where you get all of your information from pretty much. You can, you can hear everything in the water, everything with the modern subs. It also gives you a platform from which to launch weapons. Uh, you can deploy teams of special forces and do so quickly and then escape before anybody notices. It's it's the most subtle and strategically important vessel there. So if you don't have adequate stockpiles of munitions and other equipment for the purposes of using your own subs and then also for the purposes of countering enemy subs, there's a real problem there. And that's exactly what this section says, is it is concerned of specifically the stockpile of munitions and other equipment for the purpose of ASW, it would be anti-submarine warfare, as well as its own submarine operations. So it provides instruction for the Indo-Pacific commanders to make an unclassified report on the adequacy of equipment stockpiles, as well as address any concerns for their current logistical strategies for submarine resupplies and suggestions on alternative resupply locations as a means of remedying those concerns. So there's a lot to unpack there with that. They're clearly a very severe shortage or concern in that area. When you take all of those special interests and you combine it, with legislative provisions that are listed later on that require reporting of what lessons China can learn from activities in Russia uh, with Ukraine, a prohibition of funding on any research that's supported by the Chinese government, a request for a study on the implementation of a blockade of fossil fuel shipments to China in the event of an armed conflict, and a request for an independent study on the defense budget of China you get some pretty serious concern here with that the U.S. has in regard to China. And it starts to make a little bit more sense uh, seeing on TV and in the news all these interviews with you know, military commanders or politicians and China comes up all the time. I'm sure we've all seen it. It's just every other word it seems like is China. Outside of, you know, domestic social issues, that's pretty much what they're talking about. And in fact, I think the even the FBI director in an o FBI oversight hearing, not even remotely about China, 
he said during the meeting that he believes China is the most significant strategic threat to the U.S., which is incredible. Now, the, con- the implications here are pretty simple. The, the U.S. expects a conflict with China. Who knows when? It could be this year, next year, a decade from now. I mean, we've been saying this for a long time. There are references in movies from the late 80s and 90s saying that, quote, we'll probably be at war with China in the next 10 years, and it hasn't happened yet. Is that to say that it won't happen for another 10? Who knows? But all the signals seem to point to the fact that the U.S. is expecting some sort of conflict. And the drastic increase in cooperation with island nations and Japan and Korea shows that the U.S. is essentially attempting to construct some sort of seawall or operational barrier around China. Now, maybe that's a reach. I, that's, those are the signals that I'm seeing. But when you also take into consideration that Japan has increased its military budget by 25% and plans to bump that number to 60% uh, by 2027, which would make them the third largest military spender, uh, I think it becomes clear that Japan's also expecting some sort of conflict. Either that or they're ramping up to become a world power again like they did in the uh, early 1900s, and we saw how that went. I mean, so what does this all mean really to you? You know, the common person just walking down the street likes to stay informed, watch the news, all that. Well, this, I think, is mostly information that's flown under the radar in the news up until now. So everything that I've seen about it is, you know, it hinges on an abortion vote, which is a very, very small amendment that was proposed in the House of Reps committee when they were going through it that would suspend government reimbursements and payments for um, transition therapy, hormone therapy, and abortions for, you know, enlisted service people. And that seems to be all that they're talking about. But it's a, you know, 600-page document. More than that, actually. It's closer to 650. Um, And there's just so much more information. Like, all that I just talked to you about was just Articles 12 and 13, and even then, just part of it. Uh, I think that it's pretty significant in that you get some pretty clear indicators that the U.S. is is ramping up and expecting some sort of armed conflict either with China or with Russia. So, practically, that means for you out there, uh, you can walk away feeling a little bit more informed, which may not be much of a consolation. Um, maybe you'll be inspired to learn more and go look at the full bill, which, again... I'm going to make a link for, and there's already one in my article on the bill as a whole on cniblog.com. But if you're thinking more, how does this benefit me in a practical sense? Well, the U.S. and Japan and other countries around the world, European allies and such, are increasing their military budgets, and that means more military production. If uh, you have the wherewithal and effort and time on your hands to go digging and find out who the main producers are for raw materials that are needed to make military equipment or possible candidates to receive money for the actual production of the final products of military equipment, there's probably some good investment opportunity there. Uh, And you could make some money off of it. Although I personally find a little bit more value in the information and how it helps me view what I see in the news and the world. Um, 
I have a little bit more context, maybe the next time I hear a congressman say how dangerous China is, I can get a thought in my head of like what exactly they're talking about and how they plan to deal with it. But that's pretty much it. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. There's much, much more to be found in this budget that's been proposed. If you're curious, I'd encourage you to go look at it for yourself. Don't rely on me or any of the other news outlets. Like I'm doing the best I can from my my own personal observations, which, like I said, they're personal observations based on, admittedly, based on a lengthy education in history and philosophy and critical reasoning. But I'm still an individual, and it's going to go through filters that I have inside me. So if you'd like to get your own idea of what's going on, go give it a read there. I'll put the link in for you. Uh, and if you have any thoughts at all, should I look into something a little different? Send me a message on cniblog.com. You can leave a comment on YouTube, letting me know if I should go over something else or what I, what you thought of the episode. If I got anything just wildly wrong, or if I did a pretty good job anyway, uh, thanks for spending your time with me. Uh, this has been Nick with CNI Blog, giving you the context and implications behind what goes on in the world. Till next time. Bye.